0: Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club.
1: If you tell a kid that they are not very good or not very successful or not very smart, anything, that starts to limit their expectations for themselves. But if somebody tells you, nope, you've got all the tools to be really effective, there's no excuse for you not being better than you're doing right now, I think it can cause any of us to raise our game a bit.
0: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Dwight D. Eisenhower. Only our individual faith in freedom can help keep us free. My guest today, General Stanley McChrystal, is a prominent exemplar of military leadership. He is a retired four-star general, the former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan, and former commander of Joint Special Operations Command, America's premier military counterterrorism force. General McChrystal is also the founder of the McChrystal Group, a senior fellow at Yale University, and the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including Leaders, Myth, and Reality, and his most recent book, Risk, A User's Guide. General McChrystal, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the Elevate podcast. Hey, Bob.
1: Please call me Stan, and thanks for
0: having me. Well, thank you, Stan. Um, Well, I always like to start at the beginning. I find it's helpful. Uh, I know you came from a, a military family. Can you share a little bit about relationship with to your father, who is a soldier, and sort of what impact that had on you to and en- eventually enter the armed forces?
1: Absolutely. I was f- the fourth child of six and uh, of parents. My father was a uh, professional soldier. His father was a professional soldier. My mother came from the South with without a military background. So They had met at Fort Benning, Georgia right after World War II, and so began this family. And and it was a happy family. I had a great upbringing. My mother was very close to me and sort of a mentor to me. And my father was my hero. And he was a combat infantryman in Korea and Vietnam. And so for most of my life, I wanted to be him. And I think that was fortunate because not only was he a, a very competent and successful soldier, He was also a good person. As I've described to people, in all my life, I never saw either my mother or my father do anything wrong. And what I mean by that is I opened the aperture pretty wide. They never took a parking place they shouldn't have. They never kept extra change that was given to them by a clerk. They always treated people with respect and kindness. And to the degree I was able to to pick that up and emulate it imperfectly, I think they were really good role models and inspiration for, uh, for my life.
0: Well, that also proves, I guess, the adage that what you do is more important than, than what you say. <laughs> I know a lot, of, a lot of people's parents said a certain thing, but then they witnessed behaviors that didn't quite quite align to that.
1: that that's so true. It's, it's funny. I had My wife and I have been married 45 years now, and she's also the daughter of a career soldier. So then I spent my career in the soldier, and we only have one son. But the thing that is most important to me now is that he or now my three granddaughters that that he and his wife have have had ever find out anything about me that embarrasses them, that they find out in reality, I cheated on my taxes or in reality. I I did that sort of thing, because, as you say, I think it's your conduct that sets the best guidepost for the people that that you hope to to influence in some way.
0: Well, that's an incredible standard, and and maybe one. We'll talk about social media later, but maybe one positive aspect of it is that <laughs> there's a lot of monitoring of of our behavior uh, out in public to keep us uh, a little more honest. So, I know you. Then you made the decision to to attend West Point. You know, thinking about your time at West Point, um, what were some of the key leadership or performance lessons that you took away there that really stayed with you throughout your career?
1: Absolutely. I I went into West Point at age 17 and sort of following my father's footsteps. He had gone 30 years before. But I didn't take West Point very seriously. It was funny. I, I went to West Point in the summer of 1972. My father had been in Vietnam, a couple of combat tours. And so I'm thinking that what I want to be is my father. I want to be a combat infantryman. And West Point is just sort of a temporary delay in route to, to go and to be that. And so I get to West Point. I'm 17. West Point at the time is 170 years old. I don't take it very seriously. They take themselves very seriously. And we have this clash of cultures, you know, sort of meathead. McChrystal shows up. And I, I don't I see didn't you ever take... being a
0: meathead. But, but that's,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, trust me. So in my first two years, my academics were terrible, particularly in math and, and related uh, subjects and my conduct, my behavior was pretty bad. In fact, I got what they call major punishments or slugs four times in the first two years. So actually the first year and a half. And so I was what they call a century man. You had to walk punishment tours where you put on a dress uniform on Friday afternoon or Saturday, and they count them by hour. And I did 128 hours, so I was more than a century man. And there were only a small number of people in any class at West Point that <laughs> achieved that dubious distinction. So I got in a lot of trouble. I almost got thrown out for bad behavior. And then at the end of about my my sophomore year, they call it yearling year there, a couple of things happened. One, I started dating Annie Corcoran at the time, who eventually became my wife. And so that sort of gave me a little bit more direction. I think I, I got enough scar tissue as a cadet. Maybe I, I decided that it was just getting too painful to be a troublemaker. And then at the beginning, the very first week of my junior year, or cow year, they call it there, we start the year, and I had a new tactical officer who had been a special forces officer in Vietnam, And he brought in each cadet for a one-on-one counseling session. And I remember sitting down with then-Major Barato. And he says, I think you're going to be a great cadet and you're going to be a really good Army officer. And I remember trying to stand up and look to see if he had the wrong file. I said, remember who you're talking to here. I got in a lot of trouble. And he goes, nope, the stuff you've done doesn't equate to being a bad soldier. It equates to being a meathead at this point in your life, and we're gonna work through that. And I remember he changed sort of my view of myself in an instant. And he also convinced me that here's somebody who had just sort of said, I believe in you. And that and those other factors I mentioned, I started to straighten out. My last two years at West Point, I did surprisingly well academically. One math was behind me because you have to take yeah. that for but also I just had a different focus. And so my last two years at West Point were much less painful, much more successful. And I think set me up for starting my career as an army officer in, in a much better state. But I and I, I give a lot of credit to Major Barado, later later Major General Barado, for just being the kind of leader that that understood that at a certain point in your life you can you can do some things that aren't too bright yeah
0: that's also an interesting point i think for a lot of us right we we really need a mentor to reach down and and raise the bar for us right it says you look to yourself different like who me like so I feel like some after some parent-teacher conferences, sometimes wait, wait, <laughs> talking about our kid.
1: <laughs> and they always say,
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, they, you know, I was like, wait, they don't do this, this. And I'm like, no, no. I'm like, well, if we get the worst of them, then I guess that's that's we're doing something right. Um, but yeah, I, I think sometimes just you know, both that belief in you, but then also it's I'm like raising the bar for you on sort of thinking about what, what you could be, rather than I think so many people either either on purpose or inadvertently put us in a box or or lower the bar of well you'll never be a x or a y like i i've dealt with so many people in in business whose whose character was attacked by someone or someone told them they couldn't do something and the the way that sits with them 5 or 10 years later is is striking
1: yeah i think it really sets a tone and also they've proven I'm not an expert on psychology, but if you tell a kid that they are not very good or not very successful or not very smart, anything, yeah. that starts to limit their expectations for themselves. But if somebody tells you, nope, you've got all the tools to be really effective, there's no excuse for you not being better than you're doing right now, I think it can cause any of us to, to raise our game a bit.
0: Yeah, I love um there's something that was a I think a child psychologist shared once at a EO or a YPO event, but I I think it's very relevant for leadership and feedback on the same principle. Should never praise or or you know say bad things about character versus behavior. So she was saying, don't tell someone they're smart or not smart. Like sometimes you tell someone they're smart and that's permission to do. You know, dumb stuff versus you did something smart or you didn't do something smart. I, much more around behavior, and I've always thought that that was a really, really good point.
1: I think that's a good point because we control our behavior. We right. don't control whether we're smart or not.
0: Yeah, her point was equally as damaging to tell someone they were just smart and so they didn't need to do any <laughs> work, uh, as it was the, the the opposite. Well, see, I never had that
1: problem though. Nobody ever told me I was smart, so I
0: still can't no really worries. picture you as a meathead uh, doing keg stands. I don't know. something about that that just doesn't doesn't oh, reconcile. Yeah.
1: So, so what?
0: You obviously went on to have a, a decorated military career, a, a, all the way to, to general. What was the sort of greatest challenge that you faced along that ascension? Was it at the beginning or or closer to the top?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I think the greatest challenges were later. But my career is probably like many of the listeners. Uh, I started as a lieutenant, and I wanted to be technically and tactically competent at my job, so I I focused a lot on me. You know, how can I become a competent officer? And and that's not all bad. But my real responsibility was the soldiers I was leading. Yeah. And so sometimes you get confused that you you want to be personally effective. And you tend to think of the people you're leading as props or training aids for you to do that. And I don't want to say I went overboard there, but I think that in the early years, I was a micromanager. At times, I would be a bit of a martinet or a real stickler for what I wanted, almost unreasonable. And as I matured and I started to learn that in reality, my role was not to be a great lieutenant or a great captain in the In the isolated sense, my role was to be a good leader for them because they were the people actually going to get the mission done. And it it takes a little bit of experience, a little bit of scar tissue. It takes sort of reordering of understanding of how the organization actually works. I had to learn to listen to my non-commissioned officers, my sergeants. I had to learn to shut up, listen, take their advice, not always follow exactly what they'd say because i i get a vote as well but to understand that the collective wisdom in that organization really resides across a bunch of people not just in the person who's the platoon leader or company commander
0: it's interesting that really aligns to an article i wrote a few weeks ago in a couple a discussion theme that's been i've been having with a lot of business leaders and that almost exactly what you said that they're not evaluating their leaders as leaders They're evaluating the production statistics of their leaders, and the analogy was like: I could have a sales team where of a million dollar quota, where everyone hit 250k. You hit the quota, and you say things are growing great. But if you dive in there, and and one rep produced 800, and the other reps produced 50, and and no one did anything about it, well, then the sales leaders not not leading very well. (laughs) They just happened to hit the goal, but not. (laughs) Not in the, really, I should probably promote the person doing 700 and then figure out what to do with the other three.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting challenge, but it takes all of us a while to understand what our real role is. And that, that it gets a little changed at each level of responsibility because that role evolves.
0: But don't you think that more in the military, otherwise, if someone's core job is leading then we need to make sure we are measuring their performance <laughs> and more as a leader than as a than an individual contributor, right? Because that that that's why people become micromanagers because they they were used to being a contributor and now their job isn't to do all the work; it's to lead people to do the work.
1: It's it's very true. Now, one of the the realities in the military and a lot of other places is if you are charismatic, if you are attractive in appearance, charismatic in demeanor articulate in how you speak. We used to joke, if you comb your hair and you got straight teeth, then people will perceive you as a better leader often than you are. And you start to see a a whole group of people who you see them in isolation and you go, wow, Bob's a good leader, Stan's a good leader because they look like a good leader. Yeah. If you can isolate that from the performance of their organization, often you find that those people who have that perception of being good aren't really as good as as we think. There's, the Army has been working the last few years with this selection process for future commanders where they put a screen between a panel and the person being interviewed to avoid the panel from being able to see anything yeah, nice. And they get very different outcomes yeah. to how those people are evaluated.
0: So you've obviously had to train and elevate leaders to operate in literal life or death situations. What, what are the core characteristics that you look for in potential leaders?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's got to be a certain level of competence in the business. Yeah. If you're talking about a soldier or a salesperson, they gotta, they got to be baseline competent. They don't have to be the best by any means. I think the next thing is they've got to have self-discipline. And people go, now, why is that important? Because most of us know what the behaviors of a good leader are. We could sit down and probably write them down and get pretty close. (laughs) But doing them is different? (laughs) Well, it's completely different. (laughs) Because it means you have to do things that are frightening or inconvenient or unpleasant. And you have to do them even when you don't want to do them. And so I think the difference... Often between the very best leaders and very ineffective leaders is just that leader's self-discipline to actually execute.
0: So, if those were characteristics uh, not to use upon you'd be drafting for, what are the characteristics that you try to instill or train in high potential leaders? What what are the things that you've seen that they need to not not that they come with it or not come with it, but that like what they need to actually usually improve on and get better on? Yeah.
1: Typically, you can't train things like empathy. Yeah, you can do a little of it by maybe by ten years so,
0: earlier. I always say, but not, yeah. not. there's some things when someone's 30 years old that are probably pretty
1: pretty baked in. Yeah, that that's right. I think you can teach people things like decision making. Yeah, you know, decision making is a process. Whether a leader's making a very rapid decision or you're having a more formal decision. Um, you're collecting information. You are accounting for biases that either you have or the organization has. You're ensuring that you get a variety of perspectives. So as you have complete information as time and resources allow, and then you make a decision and communicate it effectively. That sounds very basic, Yeah. but how often do we see both leaders and organizations stumble in that?
0: No, and you know one thing I've heard you talked about that I wanted to dive into maybe a little later, but this is a perfect point: is the decision between a good decision and a good outcome, and it seems like those are very conflated. And sometimes luck and timing uh, let people walk away with what looks like a brilliant decision when it was unbelievably risky and a poor decision. And likewise, sometimes there are just no good options, right? So, how do you think about this decision and outcome as as separate? you know uh, things in the same equation
1: absolutely there's a great story back by george uh, bernard shaw in a play called arms and the man and it's a comedy but one of the protagonists is this prince sergio who becomes a big hero by leading a cavalry charge and you think okay what a great leader what a decisive person audacious But then you find out that in reality, his opponents had forgotten to bring their ammunition. (laughs) And had they brought the ammunition, it would have been a very different outcome. And so in a very comic way, they, they point this out that sometimes you succeed by absolute dumb luck or, you know, you're the benefit of a random good outcome. So I think the way we have to look at decisions is be pretty analytical about it. Step back and the way I look at them is were, was the leader using the right values that drive the decision for the right yeah. reason and things? And then second, was it probability-based? Was it the reasonable probability? What's the most likely outcome? The, the poker champion, Annie Duke, points this out brilliantly. She says people need to make probability-based decisions right. and then divorce it from whether it came out right. Because if it comes out wrong and you start to think it was a wrong decision people will damn a person, a leader who makes a really good call. Similarly, we will exalt into hero status people who who make really dumb decisions, but their number comes up. And so uh, there's a discipline involved in that, both for the individual decision maker and for the organization to judge those things.
0: Seems really difficult because I think we celebrate some Hail Marys that that have worked out. And also, I bet leaders don't really dive in as much with people and say, you know, objectively, you got a good outcome, but that was the wrong decision. Nor would I think that they would take that feedback very well. But as you said, like some days if the wind just went a different direction and I see this in the business world, I see people calling out exceptions all the time and putting them out at examples and I always say, if this is a behavior, if it's a hiring tactic or a decision, and you're going to do it a hundred times, and it has a ninety percent failure rate, pointing out the ten that work is actually going to get everyone into the wrong <laughs> mindset. Um, for like, there was one I used to argue with people around, like counteroffers. Like the data on counteroffers in businesses is that like ninety percent of the people are gone within eighteen months who, who you counteroffer, but people will trot out the example of the person that stayed when that's actually the exact wrong thing that you should do, that you made 99 other mistakes <laughs> and you're showing me the one the one that worked.
1: Well, that's the same with turnaround CEOs. How often does a CEO turn around a company usually parachuted in to do that yeah. and we proclaim them a genius. And then we pick them up and put them into another place and they fail. And we wonder, did they just lose their touch? In reality, it might've been unique contextual situation but it also might have been just absolute luck. So if we, look ba- if we step back and look at uh, those things, we need to be careful that we actually understand what happened. The military's got a process called the after-action review. Right. They started it during World War II. And what they do is they dissect a firefight or a small unit battle after the fact. And what they found was every participant had a different view of what happened pretty significant different view. yeah. And so just first understanding what actually happened and then figuring out why that happened, either positive or negative, was very elusive but unbelievably important to figuring out what to do next.
0: But you said something in there in the initial two, which is the key assessment thing is going back at the time, right? At the time and the in time at the information that you have and the probabilities that you understood. And was that a was that a good decision? And if you made it 100 times over, you know, what,
1: what would the probably outcome be out of 100, right? That's exactly right. I spent this weekend taking the rising seniors of the Yale football team and then my leadership seminar from Yale to Gettysburg. And of course, we go to certain parts of the battlefield and we look at successes and failures. And the spot where Pickett launched his famous charge on the third day, and everybody wants to proclaim both General Lee and George Pickett absolute idiots, and this was the stupidest thing that ever happened. But had it succeeded, then suddenly we would be writing history and considering a different way, this bold, decisive move that General Lee uh, executes. And so it's really going back and look, could it have succeeded? And try to be honest about the moment. Right. What did they know? What were the different conditions? And that sort of thing. And not being too quick to draw judgments if we don't really, if we can't put ourselves into that particular situation.
0: Can you think of an opposite example in history of war where it was really not a good decision and the person just got lucky?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm sure there are tons of them uh, where your opponent's, when the Germans executed Blitzkrieg against the French in the summer of 1940, they were outnumbered by the French, and the French had more tanks and actually better tanks. And the Germans used a new Blitzkrieg technique that's, that was very fast. But the reality was the French just made a series of mistakes. Had they not made that series of mistakes, which the Germans couldn't count on, yeah. it could have gone remarkably differently. And then we would be rewriting a different story.
0: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. they even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So look, your last book is all about risk. Uh, I guess that's a big part of decision making. Uh, we got all kinds of risk now, <laughs> geopolitical health, uh, political, <laughs> how what is your framework for evaluating risk or that you think that leaders should should do with risk? And, I, and I'll I'll throw sort of an opinion question on there. I, one thing that's interesting and has gone the other way in society the last couple of years, I think that like for example, in the beginning of COVID, risk and, and discomfort could be concentric circles or, or not concentric circles. I think that um, a lot of things two years ago that were uncomfortable were also really risky. What you're seeing now is the risk profiles change, but people's comfort level is still not there. So I think it's so interesting too, and I'm sure this goes in the framework, like uh, perceived versus real risks. And, and there are times when I always say, like if it's not something that threatens your life or health or otherwise, sometimes it's, it's good if it's <laughs> a little uncomfortable or otherwise. So what is your sort of playbook framework for assessing risk?
1: Yeah. First I'd say is we are lousy at assessing risk. We understand the science of risk. We can do tables and graphs and figure out the likelihood of something happening and the consequences if it does happen. But we're terrible at predicting exactly what risk is going to come, when it's going to come. And so what we do is we tie ourselves in knots. We spend a lot of time wondering when the next hurricane is going to come or the next pandemic, or the next war, or the next financial crisis. And we prepare typically for the crisis that happened before. Yeah, And so I'm pretty sure that we'll be ready if COVID-19 comes again.
0: <laughs> We've locked down airplanes. I always say we locked down airplanes after 9-11, but I was pretty sure that wasn't going to be the next terrorist target.
1: That's exactly right. So The way I think about this is, first, understand that in most crises we're responding to a threat or risk, about 85% of what we need to do to be effective is the same crisis to crisis. And you say, wait a minute, a natural disaster is different from a financial crisis. And I would argue the contrary. What does an organization and a society is just a big organization have to do? Have to communicate clearly. You have to align on a clear narrative so that people agree on what is the threat and what are we gonna do about it. You've gotta overcome inertia to take action when necessary. You've gotta be adaptable so you can adjust to the the peculiar instances that you're facing. You've gotta be able to make your your organizational structure work for you and not be a hindrance. There, you gotta get the timing right. Uh, And so, and then of course you gotta have leadership on top of this. So if all of those things are common to what an organization have to do, and there's only about 15% that's unique to a specific crisis, then well before any crisis appears, any threat emerges, you can work on that 85%. You can get really fit as an organization. You can be really good at that. And then all you have to do, and you've got the ability then to focus on the unique aspects of whatever the the unexpected threat that arises is if we look at covid we started the last book right before covid-19 appeared
0: yeah i was going to ask you about the timing on that it was very interesting
1: yeah yeah we were about a month into research on risk in general and yeah. covid appears so we ended up using covid as instructional as we watched it and then as a case study in the book and if if you and i were to talk about covid we might say, well, that came out of left field.
0: That was going to be my next question. So, so, yeah. Well, I'll jump to it. Um, <laughs> well, before we jump to it, can I ask you one thing? Because yeah. um, in terms of probability weighting risk, though, like in terms right. of you know, the 15% you haven't seen, I've heard you talk about, uh, I think, is it probability and consequences? Like, What's the actual formula that you look at?
1: Yeah, I mean, the most simple is the probability of something happening. Yeah. You know, if I climb up on the roof, what's the likelihood I'll fall off? And the consequences if I do.
0: Or if you don't, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: If the probability stays low, even if consequences go high, we don't worry about it because we just assume it's not going to happen to us. Conversely, if the probability goes up, but the consequences are low, we say, well, okay, if it happens, so what? Yeah. It's when they both go up that suddenly we buy insurance or we, we start to prepare ourselves and whatnot. But we're not very good at really assessing those. I really think it's more accurately portrayed as a mathematical equation. Threat times vulnerability equals risk. Hmm. Which means that if you can do away with all the threats in your life, your risk is zero because anything times zero is zero.
0: But even though you're vulnerable, that's interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah, because there's just no threats. Yeah. Now, but but you don't control that. We don't live in that world. And you can't control them to a great degree. But your vulnerabilities, you have some agency over. And if you can reduce how vulnerable you are, even if the risks go up quite a bit, your overall risk is the product of the two, is manageable. It's lower. So the key thing, the lever you can pull is clearly your vulnerability. How Resilient, can you make yourself as an individual and your organization? And that gets back to a number of just sort of basic qualities of the organization. You know, they, they did a, uh, a survey of a number of CEOs some years back and they said, What are the 10 top risks to your company? And almost uniformly, they were 10 external threats. Hmm. And then they look at companies that fail and they find that well over 50% are internal. Yeah. And so the reality is they're looking out when, when the greatest threat to themselves is actually themselves.
0: Well, that also gets to that other question I, I asked you. And I think where people have a hard time changing their strategy is the facts change, right? So we've gotten different tools and different remedies and stuff throughout this pandemic, but some people you know, have not viewed that as a change. And the, the threat's not different, but the vulnerability level is different. And people have a hard time adjusting away from that. Is that, is that sort of uh, what you think's happened?
1: I think it's inertia, an object in motion, maintains its motion in the same direction and velocity unless something changes it. And it's hard for people to get their minds around something once they've started, that conditions are different enough that they should either stop or significantly change direction. And I think in the case of COVID, because there was this confusion and when I say confusion, there were competing narratives. Yeah, So leaders were sort of buffeted by the fact that there were people telling them to go do a number of different things. It was easier just to start on something and sort of ignore the noise around you, even though part of it was very important signal because things had changed.
0: Right. The, and there was a really interesting thing I heard a group of scientists say that there was a difference between... Science and policy. And everyone kept saying that, oh, you know, we're we're sort of denigrating the science. And they were, look, the science has constantly changed. But policy people like when they sell a policy, they can't, they're not <laughs> they have to be all in on it. So they've often stayed with that policy even when the science changed. And it was a really interesting observation, right? Because if it if I mean, we'll talk about communication, but if I if you go to the public every day and you change your story 180, let's say and it matches the facts. It's
1: really hard to get anyone to listen to you, right? But that's right. And if you think about it, we started to focus on the science of COVID nineteen, but in reality the policy decision had to be made in a wider context. Correct. So you say there there is a scientific threat and we should it which argues for certain actions or, or lack of actions. And yet, if you think the economic impacts and whatnot, sometimes you gotta say, like putting soldiers in harm's way. I don't want to put soldiers in danger. But if I have to put soldiers in danger to accomplish my mission, that's what I will ultimately do as responsibly right. as I can. And so we, I think sometimes we wrap ourselves in this idea that we are following the science. In reality, you should be following rational decision-making with science as one of the inputs. So when the books are written, and I'm sure they will be numerous ones, what what do you think they
0: are going to say about how the world handled COVID nineteen What is what is your assessment on maybe what went well uh, and what 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 needed some improvement from a leadership standpoint?
1: I, I think the first is there will be many books and we won't settle on a single interpretation of what's happening. And this is probably the most dangerous thing of all, yeah. Because coming out of COVID nineteen, we're going to have people who draw conclusions and push certain ideas that are dramatically different. And so when we get to the next pandemic, we're likely to be even more divided in what we should do. I think the accurate books, the ones I agree with, which is the definition of accurate. uh, (laughs) At least you're honest about that. (laughs) Yeah, are going to say that we made some fundamental mistakes. We knew a pandemic was coming because they do come with a regular heartbeat we knew what to do about it because we had experience with public health back way before the Spanish flu in early 20th century, but, but constantly. So we had the right answer to the test. And then we got this medical miracle of producing vaccines faster than any time in history. And you line all those up, and we should have been really effective. And instead, what we did was we allowed our lack of leadership work confused leadership. We allowed a truncated or divided response. We didn't fight COVID as a single nation or as a single globe. We fought it as a number of isolated states or municipalities, none of which had the resources to do effectively. And so by doing this, we had this disjointed defense, and we just got further and further behind the, uh, the challenge, which the, as the pandemic grew, and then pretty soon the, in, the ability to test effectively sort of went by the wayside because it was the virus had gotten so yeah, much it momentum. Matter. Yeah, it, and so I think the history is going to say that we screwed it up tragically, and there should be accountability for a number of people, not a single person. You can't pin this on any one leader or or scientist or anyone else, all of us. We just didn't show, and I'm gonna go back to the judgment or the self-discipline to figure out what was best, constantly adapt to what changing information tells us, and then execute.
0: As you said it, it's so obvious, but it never occurred to me. Like The concept of addressing a global pandemic, not globally, (laughs) doesn't, by the definition of a pandemic, it just doesn't make any sense and we've seen that like what happens you know in london it will just it, three weeks later it's going to happen here right it just it, you you get previews and, and warnings and I, how much of this was really hurt by the sort of movement towards uh populism nationalism like over the last couple of years where people just weren't willing to
1: work together i think that was a huge factor yeah there were some communication mistakes early and when we characterized the threat and whatnot. But then we fell right back on the political divisions and the idea that we would leverage popular, not just opinion, but emotion. Right. And we would make this a cultural issue in the United States and other places around the world. And I think we're paying a big price for that.
0: Yeah. You know, the, the historical lesson that, that always comes back, I thought of it, you know, Jim Collins' famous work on the, the Stocktail Paradox. And when I think about the U.S.'s response and not, you know, not to get into politics, but the administration's response, the sort of accept the brutal reality, like it didn't seem like we accepted the brutal reality early on. We tried to talk it away, explain it away when we should have been doing that work that you said on, okay, let we could be right or we could be wrong, but yeah, and we still see it to this day, right? There's a spike up and there's not enough tests. And then it goes down and no one builds up any tests for the next spike. <laughs> Just supply and demand are just—it's so hard for people to do what they don't need to do when they when at the lull when it doesn't need to be done, right? For the next one,
1: and, and that's true. But we also should consider the political environment in terms of not just the the uh, partisan divide, but just the nature of elected politicians. A pandemic requires action before you have exponential growth to really be effective. Right. So a politician's got to expend resources, make potentially unpopular decisions before it's evident to all the population that we have a big threat. That is
0: not how you get elected. That's right. We have—I always say—we have unlimited funds for disaster recovery, but no one will build a, a wall. Not the—not that That's wall. Right. I mean a retaining wall or a water wall or a—you di- know—we'll do anything before it. I, I remember reading that you know for years the you know Texas Energy Commission told them you got to insulate the pipes. You got to insulate the pipes. And then this thing happens and everyone pretends like it's a surprise, but it just, you don't win any points for doing it when it doesn't need to be done.
1: And that's right. And if you do do it and then the crisis doesn't occur. You're not there anymore. <laughs> okay, we wasted a lot of money or, you know, you're not yeah. in uh, position.
0: All right. So this is a topic really interested to, to dig in with you. Um, Cause it's something I've seen, like, you know, obviously command and control leadership was the kind of dominant playbook of the military for decades or generations and companies emulated this. But I think even a lot of your leadership and stuff I've read in this 2000 person call you used to do kind of every day, maybe we can talk about that. I probably have the numbers slightly wrong, but the military has been moving away from command and control for a while now, maybe a few decades. There's some businesses out there still running this playbook. And I, I don't think they're going to be around another generation if they don't change <laughs> the, their playbook away. So I've heard a quote you once said, which I love. I don't, this might be paraphrasing. It might be the actual, uh, if you get there and the order I gave doesn't make sense, execute the order I should have given you. Um, can you sort of talk about this this change in, in the military and and how it may or may not kind of need to,
1: you know, move into the, the rest of the economy? Absolutely. I'm going to go back in military history a bit yeah. to understand, to make people understand why the military thought this way. You go back to, Alexander the Great or before. The challenge of military tactics was to get mass. That is to get enough of your force in a fairly concentrated area against the enemy so that you had superiority in that spot. You could break their line and defeat the enemy. And so from then on through history, leaders like Napoleon famously, other in our civil war, were always trying to achieve Concentration of mass at a point in time. And they thought to do that, what you had to do was do extensive planning and command and control. So these relatively poorly trained uh, and sometimes poorly educated soldiers could execute in a way so that in time and space, they are coordinated to achieve that mass.
0: So just, and just to summarize that, just so, because it's really interesting, like the lower parts aren't smart enough to know what to do, so they just need to be pointed where they need to go at any given time.
1: That's right, and it's the idea of a genius leading a bunch of idiots. Trickle-down economics. That's right. (laughs) In the First World War, you had, because of the trench system on the Western Front, you needed to achieve mass in artillery fire and attacking forces and then logistics. And all of this took immense amount of planning And then these very detailed time-driven orders because the communications were mostly wire telephones. They weren't very good in combat. And so they would write these very detailed battle plans that would say this minute this happens and people would like moving chess pieces on a, a board according to a very set timetable. The problem is that's very inflexible and brittle. And once things start to go awry, If your organization is following that plan or centralized guidance, which isn't very adaptable, then suddenly you start being clunky and being ineffective and getting horrific outcomes. But that mass is what drove it. As we start to get in a a more fluid environment where that mass can be defeated by the enemy once they identify it, you've got to suddenly have something that can pick up information at the more decentralized locations, and then act on it within a broad context of what the military would call mission command orders, a general intent of what we're trying to achieve. And everybody out there, do whatever it takes to best contribute to that. Uh, Admiral Horatio Nelson, before the Battle of Trafalgar, gave this famous instruction to his 27 captains. It said, no captain can do very wrong If they put their ship alongside that of the enemy and what he was basically saying is this battle is going to be an absolute chaotic mess so in the absence of it staying orderly get up to an enemy ship and destroy it and you'll be good if we take that now to a business context if we can show people that this is the wider environment in which we're operating this is the changes in it, and we can use information technology to inform our various elements and keep them aligned on the overall intent, what we're trying to do, then they can all act with a relative amount of autonomy, all to try to accomplish that mission. But it takes a couple of things. One, it takes the organization putting information out and down to a pretty low level that provides that previously ignorant and uninformed entity down there now to be empowered with information more than we've ever given. And then the second is at the senior level, you got to have the courage to give them the authority to act. They've got to have both the authority and the expectation that they will show initiative, that they will respond in the moment. And it briefs well, and everybody says, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to empower my (laughs) subordinates. But then they worry, they go, well, but this counts. This is really important. So I better tell everybody what to do, and I better tell them when to do it, and I better control them doing it because something might go wrong. And when it doesn't matter, when it's something unimportant, I'll let everybody show their, their initiative. But now it's really important. Right. Yeah. And I would argue the exact opposite is true. When it's really important is when you need all the different parts of your organization Contributing to the brains of it, contributing to the flexibility, adaptability, so that you can actually morph to the situation as it actually exists, not what you thought or hoped would be the case.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, in taking that to the private sector right here, you say, look, it's, it's not, with smart, well-trained talent, it's not the right strategy at all. People have probably gotten away with it for a while because… They run a company in rural Pennsylvania, and they're the only gig in town. So it's you do what I say and if you don't like it, leave. Um, now you have a super fluid <laughs> job market and a fluid talent market. And I, I still see people like I say, I still see them running this operating system. It just it seems like a way to run your company out of business pretty quickly in today's environment.
1: You not only have that job environment, you have a competition environment where other competitors come with much greater agility and they run right around you if you're not prepared to deal with it.
0: Right, because everything in your business is top down and everyone else's soldiers are responding out in the field.
1: Yeah, if you think of an analogy, if you're in the water and there's one big shark after you, you do have to worry about it. And in the old (laughs) days, I would argue that big companies, Coke had to worry about Pepsi. Yeah. And so they had to worry about one shark. Now they have to worry about schools of piranha, a bunch of different smaller organizations that aren't actually linked, but they operate in common purpose because they're all trying to get part of Coke's market share. And so they're all taking a bite out of it. And it's hard to defeat that school of enemies because there's not one thing you go after. You've got to be able to respond locally to all of those challenges. And we often get in denial that that's the environment we're operating in.
0: Yeah, that's a. I think that's a very poignant analogy. And now, the competition comes out of nowhere and quickly, and it's fast, <laughs> and it's from all different directions, and it wasn't wasn't on your radar, you know, probably.
1: Exactly, and you can beat if there are a thousand garage startups, you can beat nine hundred and fifty of them. Yeah, <laughs> but if fifty get part of your market share. Yeah, you, you got a challenge.
0: And if the only one who knows how to look for that is the person at the top, you can't poke in all those garages versus all of your people are out there doing that. That's exactly right. So, so switching topics, uh, something I've heard you talk about that I think is a huge risk today, and that's in, in some ways it's like a new old risk, uh, and that's that's propaganda. You know, in 2020, we had this unproven narrative of a stolen election that caused people to storm the Capitol building. A lot of those folks were part of this group, uh, QAnon, which propagates these crazy narratives that, if you study history, I know you do, are, are very similar to Adolf Hitler's playbook and the things that were said, you know, back in secret cabals and stuff like that. You know, back in back in that time, uh, we have Vladimir Putin starting a war under the cover of all kinds of narratives that. He's making sure the only thing that has millions of, of people here. And, you know, obviously social media is, is an accelerant to all of this, but h- how much of a threat is this to our society and way of living today?
1: Yeah, Bob, I think it's probably the biggest threat we face right now uh, because we are all vulnerable to misinformation, just unintentionally incorrect information or disinformation. And that when it's intentionally done for a purpose. And historically, it's always been dangerous because you can get people who are poorly informed to believe almost anything. And in today's world where the cost of propagating information has gone almost to zero, anybody can put out a lot of information very quickly, then suddenly the ability for people who want to influence has skyrocketed. And we have not matured as individuals or as a society to really be able to filter that effectively. And that makes us very, very vulnerable. If you see what's happened politically with QAnon, as you mentioned, there's an interesting phenomenon that QAnon will not tell people what to believe. What it does is it leaves breadcrumbs of little clues out there. And the intent is that the person who reads them connects the dots and reaches a conclusion. But because they reach the conclusion themselves, the idea is that it seats itself much more firmly in their psyche. And so QAnon leads you to it, and then you you believe that you've discovered the holy grail, the truth, and whatnot. It's pretty frightening. Now, the problem is, what do you do about it? That was, was gonna be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Part of it is you've got to counter it because most propaganda contains truth. You know, we've all watched what Putin and the Russians have done, and they they said that President Zelensky and his regime are Nazis. And, of course, from afar, we laugh and we go, they're not Nazis. One, we know them, and two, President Zelensky is half Jewish. But if you were a Russian and you go back in history, in 1941, many Ukrainians welcomed the invading German, Nazi army, because they'd had a really bad time under Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. And so pictures of that and the memory of Ukrainians being Nazi sympathizers has enough truth that people in Russia go, yeah, I remember that. They are Nazis. And so if you build upon something that has some credibility, then you can actually get people to draw conclusions that are That are pretty frighteningly wrong. Uh, And of course, we're in an age where too many politicians are opportunists. And so they are willing to latch on to or espouse anything that meets their personal ambitions, i.e. gets them more votes, more power and whatnot. The, The danger is, if I threw a scenario to you, what if for the next election on Sunday before the Tuesday election we suddenly have this flood of information about, you pick it, a Senate candidate and state And it makes spurious allegations against them. And suppose on Monday, the next day, there are reinforcing stories that come out, then the election happens Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, all of it's proven to be absolutely false. The problem is enough of the population went into the voting process, for those who voted day of election, with at least a doubt about that candidate. And it's not reversible. Right. And so think that, apply that to business, apply that to potential warfare. And suddenly you can force people to act in the moment when they are affected by disinformation and, and with potentially tragic uh, consequences. So
0: again, critical thinking skills, right? That seems to be a lost art in terms of hearing something, not taking it for granted. We know all these algorithms tend to reinforce what people click and see and otherwise. And so then they get, you know, if you start reading QAnon stuff, then everything you see soon will be QAnon stuff. So what would you suggest to parents, leaders, otherwise to get people to... Assess information more objectively because, um, like, I, I don't tend to be hyperbolic, but I—it I, seems like our democracy is 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 a little more fragile than it's been in in a real long time, and we have a couple more of these things where people are not sure that they can believe, and
1: I don't know what's going to happen. I think you're right, and the answer is I don't have a clever yeah uh, solution to it, but I look at the January sixth events at the Capitol if it was a bunch of people who knew that they were doing something wrong, knew that they were breaking the law and they were operating on bad information, you could just say, okay, that's a one-off of a bunch of hooligans or or whatever. But I believe the vast majority thought they were doing the right thing, the patriotic thing, which is actually very frightening because you can extrapolate that to, it could be any number of people doing equally Harmful right. things based upon that. I, you know, I sometimes tell myself, I think we should take social media <laughs> and maybe we ought to just put it in a box until we mature enough to use it yeah. because we see its effect on young people, effect on older people. We're just, it's like the genie that came out of the bottle and we've not yet got, as you mentioned, critical thinking skills or the maturity. Or the ability to just step back and take a deep breath before we let our passions become inflamed. And so our technology is well ahead of our evolution as a species hmm. and it could kill us. It's sort of like nuclear power was, right? People say we've got more ability to destroy ourselves and we do wisdom to, to control it.
0: Well, I, I want to ask you, cause there was, there was a story I heard you share and I think it's interesting. We expect the fringes to be fringe, right? Uh, Sides. Um, But uh, you shared a story about Martin Luther King and sort of civil rights movement and, and where Mm -hmm. he went after the, the middle ground where we said, look, like the most dangerous was the people not seeing at that stuff at the fringe was, was fringy. And that seems to be the real story. uh, And a lot of this where the people you consider kind of smart, rational, decent people, well, They don't want to get on the wrong side of a vote or otherwise. And so they're just not willing to call black and white, white. Uh, And, you know, this is a hammer and this is a circle. That seems to be the most dangerous thing I've seen. When I, we, I expect radical people to act radical. I I guess it's when I think the people that should know better don't speak up. Um, It it just reminds me of some of these historical quotes, you know, then they came, then they came for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair analogy, if you go back to the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, as they got into power and suddenly they started to put limits on the Jews, there was violence and whatnot. Uh, A lot of the German population was frightened by it. And so they weren't willing to speak up either because they were scared uh, of being binned in with that, or they just weren't sure. And so they stepped back and it lets the people who are most radical Uh, control the discussions and sometimes the actual power. If we see in our political environment now, we've got a lot of first elected leaders who don't want to become that person who becomes the target of, call it the NRA or any other group that, that does that so aggressively. And then we talk business leaders. I have a business. And every time you make a decision on whether you are going to take a position on something, some of which are pretty moral, You've got to say, am I going to hurt the business and therefore my employees because I'm taking a stand?
0: Or is it, I always say, is it appropriate for my business to have a deci- uh, an opinion That's right. when I have hundreds of employees with differing opinions, right? That's
1: right. Yeah. And it, it will get a lot of leaders of society to be silent and they will rationalize that I can't have a, an opinion on this because it's not good for my business. Society is not just political leaders. It's all leaders in yeah. society. And we, ha- I think we have some level of responsibility to decide when we should step up and, and take a position.
0: Well, can you explain the strategy that you talked about? I think it was one of your books that that uh, Dr. King used in, in that realm.
1: Yeah, Dr. King, and the famous example you're citing is the letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963, And what had happened was a number of white clergymen who actually were sympathetic to the civil rights idea had written a letter and they'd said, you're pushing too hard. You're being too aggressive. Be patient. And Dr. King came out with a brilliantly written letter, which all of us have have read many times. And he basically argues we can't be patient. Things won't change if we are patient. And the most dangerous opposition to the cause of civil rights is not the outright segregationist. It's not the Bull Connors kind of cop that's in front using water cannons. It is the passive white leader who stays on the sideline and urges caution and doesn't push hard enough. And I think we've all got to ask ourselves in those cases, when are we in a Dr. King moment? When should we step up and take a a, uh, serious position on something that it might be more comfortable or safer to sort of stay behind on?
0: Yeah, as you said that, I just felt it was the exact analogy of, you know, you could swap out the sort of democracy and in in terms of, you know, an anti, you know, looking the other way as people clearly from both sides do things that are anti-democratic and I think the problem sometimes is you're like, oh, well, I'm on the winning side of this one, right? But then when you don't say anything, you know, and then you see the same tactic weaponized by the other side, uh, you know, pretty soon it, it's all chinked away. Um, and, and that's that's where I think the leaders have to step up, I mean, and say, this is just not <laughs> democratic.
1: Well, it's a little like mob rule Yeah. because if you can get the mob to run at somebody's house and and burn it down or tar and feather them, as has happened in times past, then you can get them, or at least if not them, their peers to be a little bit less likely to speak up. And that happens with the cancel culture today. That happens with lots of different social media fueled gang tackling. And so we've made it that getting into the fray is pretty hard to reverse or to stand. And a lot of people don't want to put themselves, their family, their business, or any other of their connections through it. I think that is hurting our politics because yeah. many people won't go into politics now that I think are badly needed by the nation. And we have over-representation of opportunists, clever people, yeah. but people who are willing to do whatever it takes on either end of the spectrum just to achieve their particular ambitions.
0: Yeah, I always say, like, one example that, I like, gerrymandering, right? Like, to me, it's just wrong. It's wrong. like, I, what other party, otherwise, it's it, people are, it's right when they're doing it and wrong when it's just wrong. Like, and so that's the type of thing for if your own party's doing it, you need to say it's wrong. I, I just, I watch these articles in disbelief as people you know, do it on one side in one place and then they're critical in the other place and just versus versus. But the hardest thing for someone to do is to say to their own team, we shouldn't be doing it here in our benefit. It's wrong because then the other guys are going to weaponize it on the other side. That's one that I just constantly am in amazement with the narratives around it.
1: Well, I'm reading uh, the book that came out not long ago about Watergate. It's sort of the definitive history. And one of the things they talk about are dirty tricks and how both parties started doing these pretty humorous but but painfully effective dirty tricks to the other's campaigns and of course it it started leading to watergate the excess is there yeah
0: so i'd be i'd be remiss going back to the the war in ukraine uh i'd be remiss someone with your sort of experience on this because i think you know everyone or people i'm you know talk to like what's the end game if you had to pick what are the sort of two or three most likely outcome scenarios, and if you had to say an order, order of probability, I'm sure you talk to people about this regularly, so you, you actually have an informed opinion on this versus there are probably a lot of uninformed opinions.
1: Yeah, it's still just an opinion, but, yeah. but first I'd, I'd start with this is a huge deal. It is an inflection point in history, and things aren't gonna be the same for decades after this. We are gonna to move to a new geopolitical uh, construct in the world. Some of that's good because Europe is likely to be more united with the West, but some of it's bad because we're going to be facing off against Russia. I think that Vladimir Putin made some really big mistakes in this. You know, he he tried to do an operation that might have he gotten away with in 1985, but nowadays with the scrutiny and- They seem to have, have the training
0: of 1985 too. Yeah, like well, regionally. that's right. <laughs> yeah.
1: They couldn't pull it off quickly enough. If he could have done that overnight, we would have wrapped the table and say, we hate that, but we wouldn't have done anything. And so now there was enough time to prepare as he marshaled forces. And then this has played out slowly. So I think he is going to fail in the aspiration to take all of Ukraine or even do regime change. I think he will fail at that. Now, what I think he won't fail at, and we've just seen the new commanding general named for Russian forces, the butcher of Syria. Yeah. I think that Russia is going to look at the Donbass and Donetsk regions where the separatist Russian language is prevalent. And I think they're going to double down there, potentially put Russian troops right there on the ground, maybe expand that a bit and make it the new reality that that is essentially either a, an independent uh, state or it's part of Russia. And. Vladimir Putin will likely claim success for the rest of the operation. He'll say, I taught those Ukrainians a lesson. It won't be believable to people in the West, but it might be believable right. to his population. And that's, I think, sort of the best he can do. But then we could have a continuing conflict along that line in eastern Ukraine for the next decade. I mean, like, like been a, I've this- heard people say it feels like a.
0: North Korea, South Korea type development, right?
1: But maybe with constant combat for at least who knows how long. So I think that's very possible. Now, what we've got to consider is how much does Ukraine move to the West? Because as Henry Kissinger wrote in 2014, we need to remember Ukraine is not just another European country. It is considered viscerally by most Russians as part of Russia. So, it's a little like us letting part of the United States slide away into another block. And remember, in 1861, we fought a civil war to prevent part of our country from voluntarily withdrawing from the United States. So, I don't think Russia is prepared to do that, even for the rest. Now, can they stop it right now? It looks like it may not be possible. But they're not going to say, okay, that was a bad thing. We're sorry. They're not going to give up on that aspiration. So I think we need to understand as we make future plans in alignment with Ukraine, this is going to be an ongoing point of contention, potentially conflict for a long, long time.
0: So this is not not going away in a tidy manner anytime soon. I don't think so. All right. Well, last question for you. And this is multivariant because it could be singular, repeated or personal or professional but what's a mistake that you've made from uh, in your career or your life that you've learned the most from?
1: Yeah, I've made a ton of mistakes. When I was a young lieutenant, I remember I had a platoon sergeant that I didn't support. He was kind of a curmudgeon, wasn't popular with the troops. And the troops were more like me. The troops were sort of uh, lower class, little hipper, closer <laughs> to me demographically. And I supported the paratroopers over the platoon sergeant, and I undercut him. And it made me more popular in the moment, and it made me an ineffective leader. And I regret that deeply to this day. I would love to go back and apologize to that guy, but time passes. But that's kind of small. I think most of us have made some version of that. Obviously, the biggest, most public mistake that I've ever made was when the the Rolling Stone article came out that essentially ended my military career in 2010. People ask me, okay, well, what did you do wrong? And the answer is, it happened. I don't think that I did the things portrayed in the the article. It doesn't matter. The point is, I'm responsible for that article being written. I own that. And so I could look myself in the mirror and say, I am absolved of all responsibility because I didn't do anything knowingly wrong. I wasn't disloyal. But that misses the point. The point is, a, a crisis, a controversy landed on the, pre- the desk of the president of the United States, my boss, and I was responsible for it. And so I think one of the things I've had to learn is you don't always have to have commission in the mistakes you make. You can It can't be you decided to do something wrong and you got caught. It can be that something didn't co- turn out the way it should have, and you were you were in charge and you are just as responsible. And so that taught me maybe to be a little bit more mature in looking at at life. We talked about probabilities and outcomes. If yeah. If I had done something and everything had come out right, but I'd done the same things, it wouldn't make me right. It would make me lucky. And so when you're unlucky, You've got to not assume that you were right to begin with because you may be completely wrong and unlucky. And so I guess that's what I've, I've learned aligned with our conversation earlier. Uh,
0: that is incredibly powerful and vulnerable. So thank you for, for sharing. So where can people find more about you and your work and your books?
1: The, the easiest place is my firm, McChrystal Group, mccrystalgroup.com. And we've got links to both what we do, all our books. All, we do a lot of other writings. We do things that just offer perspectives that might be helpful to individuals and firms in this environment.
0: And you also you do a lot of leadership training, right, for organizations?
1: We do a lot of leadership training. We just finished a two-day course today for healthcare leaders, extraordinary gathering of diff, a diverse group. And we do that on a constant basis.
0: All right, great. Well, General McChrystal, thank you for joining us. It's been incredible to learn from your your decades of experience in leadership. Bob, you're kind to have me. Thank you. So you can learn more about General McChrystal, his books, and the McChrystal Group on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.